Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, this morning we're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I've entitled this Two Concepts of Freedom. The Corinthians have hit upon their own understanding of freedom. And they imagine that freedom in Christ relieves them of obligation and responsibility. And really defining freedom as freedom from any kind of constraint. The constraint of the law, the constraints of the body, ethical constraints, and maybe uh, most importantly any kind of religious constraint that may have bound them as pagans. So Christianity has introduced a a freedom which maybe we don't fully appreciate as we've never experienced the heavy weight of living in a traditional society. For most of human history, people's lives were ordered, regulated by law, tradition, Uh, We experienced this a little bit in Japan. Uh, One still feels the remnants of a a traditional society there. That, you know, every setting, every social setting, I assume Thailand's very similar, there is a set phrase, a set thing that you're supposed to say. You know exactly what you're supposed to do. When you meet somebody, you know exactly how low you bow or exactly how you greet them. In a sense, it's very comforting, right? Because everything is ordered. It's a highly ordered society. The culture then provides, you know, the authority for you. I think I I rode the trains for maybe 20 years. I would ride into Tokyo every day. And in all of that time, almost never did I see any kind of violence or, you know, if you ride a train in America, it's all, it's very, uh, I think one time I saw two guys uh, get into a fight and some old man sitting on the, the seat, he said, hey, you stop that. And they did. <laughs> so I was kind of amazed. Authority figures, the, the father the school, the company, Buddhist priest, Shinto priest, provide direction in everything. And, you know, whether it's career, marriage, where you're going to go to school, it's all regulated. I told the story of Uchimuna Kanza, you know, he would walk to school, he was afraid to walk to school. There's so many temples and shrines that uh, he'd have to pray a certain prayer or do a certain thing at each one that and he was so afraid that he'd get it wrong that he just stopped going to school that way he would go clear around the long way to you know avoid any kind of ill fortune in Japan it's not there are outlaws but they are highly regulated uh, they dress in suits and you can always identify them they're usually missing some fingers because they've been punished and the way they're punished is you cut your your parts of your finger off a joint at a time it's very strict and most of them fail and so from the the top of the society to the bottom of the society it's rule bound and I so I kinda got a feel for what it might be like to live in a traditional society 
even the emperor, you know, you might think, oh, well, the cultural elites like the emperor. But actually, that's even more highly, or traditionally, was more highly restricted because the emperor, when he's you know, on his throne, they want him to look in a certain direction. If he looks the wrong way, it could bring ill fortune. And so literally every movement of his body was controlled. In Japan, we, we were always aware of where our bed was because you don't want to be facing the wrong direction when you sleep because the dead are buried in a particular direction. You don't want to be buried with the dead. Maybe the closest, you know, when we were children, we used to say, step on a crack and you'll break your mother's back. Uh, that's sort of the way the whole society works. You know, you're always afraid you're going to do something wrong. And I think a traditional society, it just was a heavy burden. The gods, the order, cosmic order, or God dictated the, the laws of the universe were unchangeable. And you could submit, and of course everybody, or you could rebel, but even rebellion, nobody ever thought of changing the laws. And so to change up the world, this is the strange thing that's happening in the New Testament, that Christ is coming, he's going to change everything. It was the possibility that, that I think Christ introduced, and he unleashes this possibility, freedom from the law. It's freedom, you know, it's combined with the revolutionary notion of recreating the world. And the danger is freedom and recreation of the world apart from the specific work of Christ created a stream of thought in the Corinthian church and I believe we can trace that stream of thought there is a heresy that unfolds that is definitive of our age I believe this heresy of freedom freedom without constraint this marks the modern age the understanding maybe most famously represented, you know, in the three, if you had to pick three famous thinkers, Descartes, probably, he says, I doubt everything. Hegel, who says that death and nothingness are absolute. Friedrich Nietzsche, who says God is dead. And so we begin with complete doubt in the modern period, and we begin imagining that we can build the foundations from the ground up with death and nothingness in Hegel as foundational. And philosophy marked the turning to a radical freedom. And I think philosophy is just articulating what's happening in the society in general, you know. Let's read, and I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version, and I've chose, uh, chosen it because it, it does something here that it, it quotes what the Corinthians are saying and then Paul's answer. And of course in Greek there's no quotation marks. And so this is a bit of a guess and I'll explain this here in a minute. But here is this, this translation. Beginning chapter 6 verse 12. I have the right to do anything you say but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body however is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord 
and the Lord for the body. By his power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality and all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I think Paul is dealing with a new theological, a new even psychological problem in this chapter. He's already dealt with Corinthian legalism. You know, they're claiming to judge and divide and they're wanting to be the arbiters of the law. But now he's dealing with people who say, well, there is no law. There's complete lawlessness. But they're saying this from a particular Christian understanding. They're utilizing Christ to proclaim freedom from everything. Freedom to do whatever you want. And it's a rejection, it's a utilization of Christianity, of course, it's a rejection of the main point of Christianity. And this is this more, you know, modern atheism, nihilism. I think that they're all actually a development out of this kind of total freedom. The unbelief of the modern age, I, I'm claiming, is a development fostered by Christian freedom. The modern development, maybe not what Paul is dealing with, but it seems that this, it's the psychological equivalent. One who dismisses the law, one who would attempt to do away with any form of authority. And part of the problem in understanding these verses is to recover the, the quotation. So let me go through that a little bit. Most people agree Paul's quoting the Corinthians. And we know in the letters from the Corinth that there's another letter and another conversation that they've had that we don't have a record of. And so it may be that they've already started this conversation. So let me go through. The Corinthians say all things are lawful. And then Paul says, but not all things are beneficial. He repeats, all things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. The Corinthians say, food is meant for the stomach. And Paul says, but the body is meant for the Lord. So they're saying the food is for the stomach. But Paul is saying, yes, but the body is meant for the Lord. And then they say the stomach is meant for food. That is, they're saying we have these desires. We have to eat, right? We have sexual desires. We have to satisfy those. We have to go to the prostitutes, right? Paul says, no. The Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord. And then they say, yes, but God will destroy both food and stomach. And Paul says, yes, but God raises up 
our bodies, the Lord will raise up by his power. In other words, many translations take the words, God will destroy both one and the other as Paul saying that. But the Corinthians, not Paul, I think, are saying that. But they're the ones who would contend that will, God will destroy the, the physical body. But Paul is arguing throughout Corinthians, the physical body is, is very important in chapter 15. You know, they're saying it's unimportant, but he's saying the body is created by God as a good part of creation. God will redeem the body through resurrection. So if Paul agreed with the slogan, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and then added, and God will destroy both, well, that's exactly the problem they're having. If that were true, well, just do whatever you want. So the Corinthian wise guys, you know, the ones who think they're wise, see the body as trivial, as transient. And they've concluded it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. After all, aren't our souls and our bodies completely separate? If we're hungry, we should eat. If we are desirous of sexual gratification, well, go to the prostitutes. None of this makes any difference because it concerns only external, physical matters which are of no lasting significance. And of course, Paul's going to refute that idea. But it may be that they're twisting Paul's own words because Paul says, all things are lawful. He's going to say this later in Corinthians. He says it in Galatians. He may have already said this to them. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And then he says, let one seek not his own good, but that of his neighbor. And he, of course, the conversation in Corinthians and Romans is really about food sold in the marketplace, meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So he says, well, if your conscience lets you eat it, don't worry about it. But if some are troubled, be concerned for the weaker brother's conscience. And so all things are lawful. They may be taking this and they're taking his conversation about food and they're applying it to sex. The way in which this freedom applies in food, of course, is very different. Eat anything that is sold in the market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Paul's remark refers only to things that are indifferent, that don't matter. But they wish to treat fornication. And of course, in Greek society, fornication was no big deal. They had services available. And they're arguing this on the ground that the existence of the bodily appetite, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, obviously that's for what, the way we're made. And they're drawing this out and applying it to the whole body. And Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of a Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? God forbid. May it never be. If you join yourself to a prostitute, you're saying, this is like, this is on the order of joining yourself to the Lord. The two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis there. And of course, Paul's going to quote that same verse in Ephesians to describe, as he does here, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There is the possibility posed here of reconstructing 
from scratch what it means to be human. And it unleashes a plague of possibility. The Corinthians have had the heavy burden of, you know, lifted from them of living in a traditional society. And they seem, I think, to be the originators of this idea of total freedom that I think we still hold to in the modern age. After all, we live in the land of the free, right? We have a constitution that enshrines freedom as an end in itself. The American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. Ours is an age in which old tyrannies have been completely thrown off and people have imagined they can reinvent the world, our country, our civilization. The civilization of the Western world is largely a result of this. And so the excitement and perhaps the potential destructiveness of this radical freedom. Friedrich Nietzsche, he, he says, it's beyond good and evil. We've been unchained from the sun. We're hurling through space without constraint. Maybe he was kind of a prophet for our age. The death of God, he pronounces, and of enduring value. He describes it personally, by the way, of course, he himself dies a, a terrible death. He goes insane. In literature, I noticed that there's a new film out about Mary Shelley. Do you know Mary Shelley wrote the book Frankenstein? It's a whole new genre of literature. Maybe it's the, it's the first science fiction work, some say. And of course, Dr. Frankenstein literally constructs a human creature, a human-like creature. He uses chemistry. He uses the science of galvanism, which is actually, you, know, you take electric prods and you can move the parts of the body. The creature says to Dr. Frankenstein, I ought to be thy Adam, but instead I am your fallen angel. Robert Louis Stevenson, about the same time, writes Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The possibility of reinvention of humanity from within. But of course, the creature rises up to destroy his creator. Beyond good and evil, unchained from the sun, it describes not only a philosophical realization, but a, I believe a nearly unbearable psychology a new form of personality and of personality disorder. The spirit of the age questions everything. This questioning literally paralyzes. This is why we have what is called psychoanalysis. People begin to come to a doctor, Sigmund Freud, and they were paralyzed, literally paralyzed, or they were blind because they could not open their eyes. But there was nothing physically wrong with them. And he decides what's wrong with them is they're hysterical. They have a mental problem. The disease, he says, is the question, I believe. You know, he calls it hysteria. It's the question, I believe, which total freedom raises. Am I a man? Am I a woman? This is the way psychoanalysis phrases this. What is a man? What is a woman? Eric Sprague has concluded, I'm neither man nor woman, I'm a lizard. You can go on YouTube and see videos. 
His body modifications include sharpened teeth, a full body tattoo of green scales. He's slit his tongue so that it's like a lizard tongue. He's had subdermal implants so that he's green. And he's recently inked his lips with green ink, injected it. Some people were saying that he was going to have a tail transplant, but he said no, that, that Eric himself says that would be impossible. But he did start a, a rock band, Lizard Skinnerd is the name of his group. I should note, this is just a footnote here. He was pursuing a PhD, and he has an undergraduate degree in philosophy. I think the PhD may have been in philosophy, too. So I, as I got into this, I got a little carried away. I realized there's hundreds of these people. Lizard man, cat man. There's a woman with 9,000 piercings. She's just every part of her body. They're transforming themselves with body modifications. And so what Freud encounters in his clinic are people who are literally paralyzed. They do not know how to carry on because everything is open to question. And so this hysteria, am I a man or a woman? You know, you don't have to go to the bizarre lizard man or bird man or cat man. Just go to the local high school. Am I a man? Am I a woman? What am I? This idea of total freedom from any constraint, of course, is inherently self-contradictory and death-dealing. Not even God is unconstrained. He's constrained by who he is. He does not lie. Existence, character, who we are, and certainly human finitude is not unconstrained. Who is the only one who is completely unconstrained? I think we can look out to the cemetery. No constraints there, right? But of course that's a kind of nonsense statement as death is the ultimate constraint. But it's precisely this contradiction I believe that the Corinthians and our age is plagued by. In the attempt to throw off every constraint, the stomach for food, the food for the stomach, the body completely plastic. It is a kind of living death. And so this a question structures this new form of subjectivity. The question of being, the question of sexuality, the question of humanness. Well, isn't this precisely the possibility posed by the Apostle Paul? Doesn't Paul describe freedom from the contingencies of sex, gender is plastic, neither male nor female. Ethnicity is set aside, neither Jew nor Greek. Economics and social status are rendered inoperative, neither slave nor free. Isn't this a rejection of all the contingencies of the embodied circumstance? Everything is open, right? And of course, no, Paul says. Paul's describing a new freedom in Christ, but this freedom is realized by recognizing the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Don't you know that your body is a holy temple in whom you have who, what you have from God and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. This is the way he concludes this discussion. 
glorify God in your body. And so yes, there is a reorientation to the law, recognizing that the law is not everything. The law does not constrain or compel. But this doesn't mean that we're left in a void. But what replaces relationship to the law is recognition of who owns us. And the Corinthians, by simply declaring freedom from all constraints, are missing the constraint which is key to Christian identity, ownership and service to God. And so Paul does not simply suspend male and female and human sexuality. He sees it as being fulfilled by God, being joined to Christ. Shall I take the members of Christ and join them to a prostitute? In Romans 7, Paul utilizes the same metaphor, sexual metaphor. There's the woman who would declare herself free to love anyone. She has this new form of freedom. Paul says, my brother, and this is in Romans, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God, one is freed from the law, from the constraints of the law, but it is through being joined to Christ. It's not simply a reorientation to the law or reorientation to the body or a reorientation to death. To attempt to throw off every constraint, the body, the stomach, food, it is an orientation to death. But dying with Christ is not simply a taking up of death per se or simply nothing. This is Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, by the way. It is specifically to take up the cross-bearing servanthood of Christ. So while Paul describes a new freedom in Christ, this freedom is realized, I believe, by recognizing the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Understand your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. We take up this alternative freedom in the body of Christ. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. And so this glorifying servitude is the freedom which lays down the heavy burden, yes, of the law, of being constrained by the law, of being you know, the burden of establishing our being, of determining ourselves, it frees us from that also. You are not your own. And so there is a reorientation to the law. The law is not everything, and the law does not constrain or compel. But what replaces relationship to the law is recognition of our relationship to Abba, Father, God, the body of Christ. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.